Most of the time when you go into the medical setting, everything that happens corresponds to a norm, to something that you expect. So you probably, you know, don't notice it or you may not even have thought that it was different before. And and yet it is. <laughs> It's a result of history and of choices people have made over time. And this is what we're exploring today with Sarah Morgan. Um, this is the third and final part in our three-part series that is covering um, students. It's the student special and it is celebrating interns all over the nation that had the privilege of joining amazing organizations in healthcare throughout the nation. We're able to, you know, bring their passion, their hard work, um, and in the process capture some of the best practices, ideas, and things that they will carry forth as they launch or enhance their careers in the medical field. Um, Sarah's perspective is very interesting. She has a degree in microbiology, is also working towards public policy uh, and a master's degree. But her perspective is really about how things were historically and how that shapes how things become today, maybe in the future. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. All right, so you're a patient, you walk into a hospital, and you know that you've had this pretty consistent pain in, say, your lower right half of your body. You've looked up online what the symptoms are, you've seen other people's experiences. You can make the general conclusion that you probably have a problem with your appendix. So whenever you go into the hospital, you tell people, I think there's something wrong with my appendix. So you sign your papers just to get in, you're probably going to sign additional papers for whenever they check you out, and then if they do decide to do surgery to remove your appendix, you're going to sign more papers for that. All of these steps are making sure that they know that they have your informed consent. They know that you want them to do this surgery and that you know what the possible consequences of this surgery are. So most people, when they do get in and they sign all these papers, I mean, I think we're more annoyed than anything else. But why Why is this whole like patient consent interesting? Why isn't this, does this exist always? So imagine that you had that same pain on your side, but instead it was like 1890. So you go to your local hospital, you really have no idea what's happening to you. You just kind of are in pain. A doctor comes and sees you. They sort of look you over, maybe they'll like press on your abdomen a couple times and listen to the stethoscope, do their thing. They're gonna come to a conclusion. Maybe they think it is your appendix. Maybe they think it's something else completely. They're probably not gonna tell you what they're thinking. And that's not because they hate you or anything, it's because they don't want you to worry. They could be thinking this could be cancer, this could be any sort of things. I don't really know. If I don't really know, why tell them? Because that's just going to make them worry and that could affect their health. So they didn't have the same sort of obligation to tell the truth all the time to their patients. Even if they were telling the truth, they could be lying by omission. And that was just kind of the standard back then. So they could move forward with whatever surgery they thought was right without getting the consent from the patient because the patient was also kind of entrenched in that culture. You went to the doctor, the doctor fixed you. You didn't question what they were doing. They just did what they thought they needed to do. And you kind of just 
allow them to do so. But again, since this was quite a while in the past, medical knowledge isn't quite what it's like today. And it's not as democratized as it is today. Because again, you can go online, you can look things up, they might not be true, but you can do a lot of the research yourself. Back in the day, you couldn't really do that. So you just had to hope that your doctor had the most recent information and could do whatever the best options were for surgery at the time. And surgery definitely became more popular over time because again, it just became more successful. Uh, there were ways to treat infections. There were ways to better stitch people up and make sure that they actually healed over time afterwards. And you did kind of see more conversations about just consent itself, not even conform informed consent, just consent, just because surgery was becoming more popular. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. So <laughs> tell me a little bit, how does the society go from a place of no consent at all to a place of informed consent? Is this a shift that happened? Is there an event that happened? Is it a shift over time gradually? Do we, do we know what triggered this kind of change? So between no consent and consent, I would say it was the fact that we were just learning more all the time about medical procedures and they were becoming more commonplace. You could get them done for things that weren't necessarily life-threatening. One of the landmark legal cases was actually like an older woman who was like, I think I'm losing hearing in my right ear. So she went to the doctors to like get any blockages taken out or something like that. But as the doctor was looking at her, was like, I think it's actually the left ear that's the problem. So without telling her, he did the same surgery, but on the left ear. Hmm. And so afterwards she realized, I don't think he did the surgery on the ear I asked for. Also, I don't think my hearing has gotten any better. So she took him to court and the court did make the decision that even though she had given the consent for a surgery, it was not for that surgery. So it was not consent in the way that they were starting to require of doctors at the time. So even for something as simple as like that ear surgery, that was like a very landmark case in that if other people had similar things where it's like, oh, the doctor did this even though I didn't tell them to or really want them to, and they never informed me of what their decision was gonna be, they now had precedent for if they wanted to press charges. Uh, because back then, they didn't necessarily have malpractice, but it was considered like a battery charge. Um, and it took a while for them to develop like a separate specific charge for cases of like malpractice and lack of consent and things like that. Um, but then it basically took until like the 50s and 60s, and this is like even a while after Nuremberg happened, for them to decide we need to have a real concrete system of rules and guidelines for first ethical research and second consent for like research participants and people that are undergoing medical procedures. So that um, was stuff like the Belmont Report and the Beecher Papers kind of came together and created a specific set of sort of rules because like initially you had the Hippocratic Oath which is just do no harm. But the problem with do no harm is that it's kind of vague enough that you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. Like whenever it came to telling your patients the truth, that fell under do no harm because you thought, oh, if I tell them they have cancer, they're gonna be hurt by it. So you can see where that can be sort of misinterpreted. So whenever the Belmont report came out, they were thinking about consent, beneficence, and risk. So it would be like if you're going into an experimental study you know you have cancer and you want to do this experimental treatment 
first they're gonna make sure you can actually give consent, like you're not in a coma or something, um, and you can actually like agree to be in this study. Uh, beneficience comes to a lot of different experimentation things. So like one of the other big cases was there was a guy I can't remember his exact name, but he was in a prison system and he was giving people injections of cancer cells to see if it would give them cancer. He was not telling them that that was what he was doing. He didn't really know what the outcomes would be. So, obviously that's not beneficence. You're not saying like, oh, this is gonna improve your health if I inject these cancer cells into you. So, you kind of have to make sure that if you are giving them a treatment, it's to improve their health, not to just see what the outcome would be. And then, risk is kind of the same thing. If you're giving someone an experimental treatment, you want to have some level of evidence that it's better than the standard. Or that if the standard is not working for them, then this at least has a chance of helping them. And that shows up a lot whenever people do clinical trials. Showing that risk has been like properly accounted for is a big factor in whether or not your clinical trial gets approved or not. Um, but it kind of took until the 80s for informed consent to become more prevalent. For them to realize like a person really has to know more about what's happening to them rather than just telling them, oh, I'm gonna do surgery on you. And they're like, oh, okay. You would have to walk them through like, this is what could happen if it goes wrong. This is what could happen if you have like an adverse reaction to the anesthetic, things like that. And this sort of happened because legally, the paradigm was sort of shifting. They were looking at the relationship between patient and doctor, like a contract as every other industry kind of had. Because if you go to a plumber and they come into your house and you're like, my toilet's clogged, can you fix it? And instead they just like refinish your sink. You're like, what? Obviously it would not go down very well, but if that happened at the doctor's office, people wouldn't bat an eye. So the reframing of the relationship from something so the doctor knows best, they're gonna do it and you're just gonna have to deal with it to something more like you are the customer. You are going in there for a service. Even if you don't know exactly what service you need, you still need to agree to what they're going to be doing to you and you need to know what exactly they'll be doing so that you can actually agree to it is really what changed that. That's a very interesting dynamic and I think we find this also when you're looking at education. Mm -hmm. And I think in both cases, healthcare and education have a model where, for example, in a private school you have a student who's paying for that service. In a hospital you have a patient under the American model is paying for that service and at the same time you have people in authority that may have more knowledge than that client which is quite unusual when you're looking at retail or other things usually the people who are consuming know what their needs are very precisely they're able to articulate it but here you get into a situation where a professor or a teacher or a physician may actually have a, a deeper knowledge of whatever it is that you need. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting dynamic to see at play and a balance in a certain way because it requires education but they're still the person paying your, your bill at the end of the day. Yes, yes. And I mean, the fact that uh, healthcare is treated as if it was a free market good has its disadvantages. Um, but I think in this case, that is one place where it did help in sort of closing the gap between patient and doctor and ensuring that there is a clear line of communication between them, even if the doctor or the patient doesn't really want to talk to each other. Um, 
And I think that is one of the advantages of looking at it from a public health perspective, because a lot of public health is how do we communicate this to people that are not familiar with the field. And bedside manner is that. And making sure a doctor has good bedside manner and not just being nice, but actually being able to communicate with the patient and address what their fears and needs are is so important, especially today, because like if you even compared to like the breadth of possible surgeries you could go through today, or even just minor procedures compared to like what they could do in the 1920s, I'm sure we have like over a thousand times more things that you could possibly sign up for. And all of them are increasingly more complicated just because we know more now. And explaining that to the layperson or the patient is of course going to be more complicated, but it's all the more important to do. Uh, because again, you want to make sure you are actually getting their informed consent and that you're not just sort of browbeating them into saying yes to this procedure because you think it's best for them. Right, and so there, there's a role of navigators, what you're saying. There's mm-hmm. a lot of options, maybe more options than before, so now it's accompanying the decision-making as opposed to doing it on their behalf. Yes. And I, I think it's interesting, and I, I did come across a couple of articles, we'll link them in here, where they were mentioning different cultures have different relationships to their doctors, and this idea of paternalism um, is not always as evil as we may depict it. So for some people, it's actually a relief to say, you know what, someone that's very knowledgeable is coming in, I have a lot going on to worry about in my day-to-day, and they can make decisions on my behalf, and that's almost a relief for them. Yes. And there's this other part of the population that says, no, I, it's my body, I want to be engaged, and I want to have power over it. So it's perhaps more of a spectrum and perhaps more of a case-by-case than a universal prescription, so to say. Yes, and I think that there are definitely people who might be in that patient role and be like, I don't want to make the decisions, just do what's best for me. And that in itself is not a bad thing, but whenever it does become a bad thing is when there, and I'm going to look for the specific quote on this, um, but there was, in one of the court cases, they called it a conspiracy of silence. And this is whenever they were looking at a doctor that did a specific procedure, and it had to do with injecting a man's like arteries with a visualization aid so that they could do the radiography and just see like where the blockages were and the way they did it ended up paralyzing him and they refused and refused and refused to admit like we only stuck him once there's no way that we did it more than once even though doing more than once was pretty much the only thing that could have paralyzed him in the way that they were doing it and even though there were like multiple doctors there other aides etc nobody wanted to admit that perhaps they had done something wrong. And part of that does come from if you have an entrenched culture of paternalism where the doctor is always right. And so there may be cases where having a more paternalistic view is what the patient wants. But if you are a doctor that is put in that position, you still have to be very aware of where there is opportunity for abuse. Makes sense. I, I like the idea that you introduced a little earlier about um, public policy because you're saying there, there's different angles to this. And um, when you're looking at epidemiology and at, at running hospitals, you know, and spreading disease and controlling them in, in different words, I thought it was interesting because this idea of consent also gets reflected somewhat in the research. Mm-hmm. And for hospitals, it's interesting because there's a very fine line. If, if I remember correctly, they are allowed to 
look into um, a question they have and not inform the patients that they're running quote-unquote a study as long as it's not quote-unquote a study and what qualifies for the study is basically if the whole hospital is shifting for example from something that used to they used to do to a new practice Mm -hmm. and they still have technically the before and after snapshots so realistically speaking this this could be used as experimentation Mm -hmm. but but if it's not explicitly with the desire to learn something and to compare two methodologies then they're allowed to not inform anyone Mm -hmm. and it was interesting because the it's a very fine line right do you have two groups simultaneously or do you have them sequentially and that that legally makes a huge difference yes yes um and it's kind of interesting to think of that because like obviously the regulations are very different for like this is a medical intervention we're giving this person like a new type of bandage so we have to go through the whole like legal process behind that versus like oh we're changing our methodology like we're changing our nurse rotation we're changing something like that which is is that what you're trying like kind of referring to it's just like more methodological changes with how the hospital is run absolutely and it yeah. still impacts the care at it does the impact the care but we don't consider it the same way and i agree it would be much harder to be like we're gonna run this part of the hospital the old way and this part of the hospital the new way um because like that would just kind of be chaotic but um uh to tie it into something that we've seen before uh rollout periods kind of do address that where you have the whole hospital within a system trying out this new thing and then they can report back to the other ones and then move them into this new type of care and that sort of problem does come up in medical trials as well like if you're running like a double blind test and you're trying out this new treatment and it's like wow the new treatment really works at what point do you give it to the control group that's a really difficult decision to make because you don't want the control group like just languishing and in pain while like your test group is doing so well so you really have to do I don't know like a cost benefits analysis and see how far along you are in your testing to get everyone on the same page because it can be difficult we all know that facebook isn't for business but let's face it sometimes we just want to wind down so we've created a fun space it's full of quirky facts and very clever inventions in the medical realm and hey it is all about healthcare just not the serious stuff so next time you take a break find us on facebook now next week we are launching into a brand new um, series this one the the season will focus on simulation and simulation is a very interesting Um, topic which actually ties in nicely with uh, this idea of ethics how do we experiment and help train the future doctors or even the current ones that need to update their their knowledge without causing harm to the patient well it's done through simulations and there's a very wide range of them some of them are very high tech some of them are low tech and some of them are even things you've never thought of as a simulation in a couple of moments we're going to share with you what's coming in the next episode but If you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast, help us spread the word. Give us a quick rating, write us a review, or just share with a friend.